The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Always in Buddhism it will be the case, won't it, that the number of people that actually practice is a lot less than those that are interested in Buddhism. And when we talk about practice, I don't only mean meditation, because I think that is... Um, is a very important part of it. But, you know, when we practice giving, sharing, that's part of the practice as well. And it's a part of the practice traditional Buddhists are really good at. <laughs> they really enjoy. And then, of course, the next part of the practice is our ethical behavior. That's so important. That's the basis for our um, developing the mind, meditation, and other aspects of developing the mind in positive or wholesome states. So, you know, this is a whole of the practice, but this is a very important part of the practice. So I always feel with the, mon the Sunday talk, I often try to incorporate a bit of meditation, <laughs> even for a short time. So people get a little bit of a taste, an inkling, or perhaps a suggestion or something that maybe they can try in their lives, you know, because this is really where we make a big difference to the quality of our awareness, our mindfulness, uh, our sati, or what's going on inside ourselves. I read a lovely quote, uh, just uh, somebody who sends me these quotations <laughs> from Sri Lanka all the time, and one was from Lama Zopa, who's famous for, you know the Bendigo uh, stupa of great compassion? That, uh, that's his group, I call it FPMT, FPMT, and he was saying, mindfulness of what's going on around us, of the body, of what's going on around us is good, but what's far more important is our mindfulness of our motivation, what's going on inside. And so that is something that is good to keep in mind. And meditators, you know, when we practice meditation, we have much more potential to actually see what's going on inside. And that's where we can make the real difference, because... Uh, then we can come off automatic. We're aware when, we, when a negative state of mind comes up, a negative mood, a negative feeling comes up, and we don't necessarily have to act on it. But of course, most people who haven't practiced meditation and don't necessarily have this self-awareness, reflective awareness, that will allow them not to act on things. And I call that uh, seeing things, but not being them, not becoming our moods of anger, not becoming our moods of depression, anxiety, whatever it be in a negative state of mind, whatever that negative state of mind is, not necessarily acting on it immediately. And, uh, of course, the Buddha's teaching is very good for us because it, uh, it encourages us not to identify with these negative states of mind. We tend to identify with a lot of things, but, good heavens, would be much better to identify with positive things than negative things. And yet we do. We think, well, I'm the anxious person, I'm the depressed person, I'm the angry person, I'm the worried person, I'm whatever it is. And we're really identifying with things that are really transient in the mind. They're coming and going. They're not there. They're not permanent fixtures in our minds. And that's the important thing with the Buddha's teaching on, we call it non-self, really that these minds and these, uh, our minds and bodies are a process. 
And so we can influence that process. We can't control it. That's one of the problems in meditation, when people think, I'm going to control the meditation. And then you hear about people experiencing samadhi headaches <laughs> and these sorts of things. They say, well, I guess really, headache comes on, you know. And I say, no wonder, you know, you're really trying to control something that's not under your control. You can influence it, you know, you can create the causes and conditions for states of mind to occur. Very easy to see. Many people watch the news and they get really angry. <laughs> this is a cause and condition for bringing up, I say, a negative mood based on that experience. It doesn't have to be negative because when we see the suffering in the world, this is the focus of the Buddha's teachings, isn't it? When we see that, there are various uh, reactions we can have to that. And of course, compassion is a big one. And, and it can bring up wisdom too, because we see, wow, this change, you know, it's sweeping away the world. These people in the Ukraine, a month ago, they never thought that they would be refugees. Now they're refugees, their homes are gone, you know, um, some of their relatives have been killed and their country turned into turmoil just in less than a month. Soon it will be a month, I think. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we realise this is the teaching that, that uh, reality, life is giving, giving, uh, giving us, giving everyone, that there's nothing we can take for granted, that it's a sure thing. And, of course, that's a big teaching that Ajahn Chah gave, a famous uh, meditation teacher in northeast Thailand. He gave this teaching of uncertainty, that it's not sure. And this is actually based on this impermanence, the fact that everything can change without notice and our lives can be turned upside down. And yesterday I gave a, a talk and this is, the, uh, the talk was focusing on taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma and the Sangha. But it was also mentioning one of the, the quotations that I really like was, uh, uh, there used to be, he still is there in Perth, a man who would ask for the three refuges and the five precepts. Because in Buddhism we always ask for them. It's completely voluntary. We have to keep it, so it's, you know, we individually we have to keep it, so if we wish to take them. And so it's our responsibility. But he used to ask for the three refugees <laughs> and the five precepts. But it made me reflect, yeah, we, we are all really refugees in a sense. You know, we have this idea, and I, I mentioned a quotation from Ajahn Shah, that we have this home, which is where we are. But he, he, mentions, uh, he mentioned this is only a convention, this is our home, that in actual fact, you know, we soon, wherever home is, we'll have to wander on, we'll have to move on because we'll either move from this life or circumstances will change. And we see that, you know, in the Ukraine. Those people a month ago, they probably didn't think what they're experiencing now, over three million people, are refugees. But we, are, we all are, in a sense, refugees. So the sense of taking refuge in something that's reliable, something we can depend on, is very, very useful. And of course... You know, that, um, that refuge is, the, is uh, for the Buddhists, is the Buddha, Dhamma and the Sangha. You know, and of course, as I mentioned yesterday, the, the Buddha, the refuge in the Buddha is not just as an historical figure. It's really in all of our uh, uh, potential to become enlightened. 
because the word Buddha is just a title, actually. It's not a name. <laughs> it's not a personal thing. And the Buddha mentions there have been other Buddhas before him. But it's this quality of knowing, being aware, of awakening. Because Buddha comes from a word called bujati, which means to awaken. And we can awaken from sleep. And of course, that's what a Buddha has done. He's awakened from sleep. But that's good for him. But if we can't do that, we can't awaken. We can't become Buddhas necessarily because we say that if there is, has been a Buddhist, a Buddha in this eon the, with, whose teachings are still available, there is, uh, usually there is no other Buddhas that arise. But we have that potential. And when we're here this evening, of course, that's what we're doing. <laughs> we're, we're arousing that quality of Buddha or Bujati, you know, to awaken, to awaken the mind. And order, in order to awaken the mind, of course, we need a program or a path. And of course, this is what the Buddha is offering in the Dhamma, you know, a path. And as I mentioned before, a very important part of that path is the map. You know, we call it right view, samaditi in Buddhism. But that's so, so important. It's missing in a lot of uh, spiritual teachings, especially modern spiritual <laughs> teachings. And it's a, a path that's so complete, so whole, and so um, safe that we can follow it. And it gives us this path of practice. And of course, for in terms of the, uh, the path, the Noble Eightfold Path, one of the, the qualities that we can really take refuge in, it's very similar to Buddha or Bujati, just being awake, is mindfulness, sati. You know, sati is a very important quality because if we can't be aware, if we can't know what's a, what is happening in the present moment, for instance, then it, it's almost impossible to practice. <laughs> We can't keep precepts because <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll only be aware later. Oh, oh right, that was a, a cockroach I trod on. Or, you know, I, I, uh, I said this and it wasn't quite true. Or whatever it is, our mindfulness enables us to practice the uh, ethical behavior. So mindfulness is, is such an important quality. But one of the aspects of mindfulness, I didn't mention it yesterday, is not only remembering the present moment, but it's keeping in mind the Buddha's teachings too, having those in mind. So that we have that map, that right view that the Buddha uh, talked, talked about and uh, encouraged. Because if we have a right, if we have a map, we've got a sort of rough idea of where we're heading. If we don't have a map... Um, be nice to have a, a, a Google Maps uh, spiritual path, wouldn't it? Where <laughs> this voice says, and now turn right, now practice mindfulness, now. <laughs> wouldn't work that way, would it really? We have to have our own internal Google Map. We have to have our own internal uh, quality of, of the Buddha, as it were, own internal quality of the path. And this is what happens when we practice mindfulness, when we practice the path, then... And the Buddha says we can, the path can arise for us. It becomes our internal compass, our internal direction. We know, and this is the first stage of awakening, isn't it, really? Sotapanna, Sotapati, or in uh, Sinhala, so on. We know the direction of the path. We know what's in accord with the path. Before that happens, of course, we can 
wander off the path, <laughs> go here and there, and all sorts of things. But if we have the Buddha's teachings in mind about the path, we have the good criteria for knowing when we wander off the path. And of course, criteria is, you know, what's... I mean, this sounds very basic, but the world doesn't really run on this, knowing what's good and what's not good. It sounds very basic, doesn't it? But in actual fact, you see the world as it is, and you realize we don't really understand what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, what's good, what's not good, what's positive and what's negative. And so this, this is a, a very useful compass for our practice. If we notice we are practicing in whatever way we are practicing, whatever we are practicing, if negative qualities are growing, then we can be sure, hmm, I'm off the path. If I'm getting more angry, more um, suspicious, getting more envious, getting more or any of these negative qualities, we can tell, yes, yes, I'm not on the path. <laughs> this is not consistent with the path. So it's always a good guideline for us when we're practicing the path, when we're practicing mindfulness to see how it's developing. And I remember many years ago, because I was talking to Ajahn Sadaro this evening about different uh, modern spiritual traditions. And uh, I remember I, when I was young, I was practicing T, TM. Have you heard of TM? It's not so fashionable these days. still around. Transcendental Meditation. And this was Maharishi, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. He was the teacher of the Buddhas, that Buddha, a teacher of the Beatles. <laughs> not the Buddha, teacher of the Beatles. <laughs> and that's what made him famous, I think, actually. But uh, the TM meditation, I noticed, I did the meditation, I noticed sometimes I come out of very negative mind states. And I thought, wow, this is really weird, you know, that you... And I suspect, I was thinking about it the other day, and I suspect it's just that I, it's usually 20 minutes long. And maybe 20 minutes, I was thinking, is not long enough for some mind states to let go of them, let go of the negative mind states that we've accumulated during the day. And also in that teaching, there's not, not so much emphasis on uh, identifying, recognizing negative states of mind and recognizing the result of them. Because when we see the result of something, if it's really harmful, really unpleasant, it's very easy to let go of, <laughs> much easier actually. So uh, that, that was very important for me later, I realized, just to, to check up, um, you know, is this wholesome or unwholesome? Because you know you're not on the path if it's unwholesome. And that's true for any of these modern spiritual groups, where, you know, whether they be gurus or whatever, you know, to check up on what states of mind are being developed. Because we're always developing states of mind. And sadly, if we're not practitioners, if we're not meditators, we can get very good at some of the negative ones. We've practiced it very well. We can get very angry, irritable, grumpy, annoyed. And we, if we repeat it again and again, we'll become even better at it. <laughs> so it's really a choice when we have a teaching like the Buddha's teaching, to recognize these states that are not helping me one bit. And we don't, uh, it's not necessarily a path of uh, getting rid of it, because that's the, the uh, natural um, uh, reaction to anything we don't like, so anything that's unpleasant. And for instance, when we have pain, 
you can see the mind gets very negative. And this is not useful because, of course, the pain usually gets worse and the focus becomes more strong, the more the aversion to that pain. So this is very important that we check up on what we're practicing. Is it leading to wholesome states of mind, uh, wholesome, state, wholesome thoughts, emotions, positive states of mind? And so uh, this is a very good way to check up on the Dhamma, that's our refuge in Dhamma, is our practice on the path. And it's even though we have, you know, the Buddha's teaching and they're very uh, detailed, really, quite detailed, they, we have to explore it for ourselves. You know, he, he cannot walk the path for us. And that was another one of the quotations I mentioned yesterday from the Dhammapada, that we are our own refuge, we are our own protectors, because we have to practice the path. The Buddha can't do it for us. He can't say, here's stream entry, please have stream entry or whatever. Have this insight, you know, have this deep meditation, jhana. He can't do that. It's our practice, our responsibility. So this is an important principle you know, it's not as if we are following like uh, uh, robots <laughs> these, uh, these uh, uh, rules or prescriptions for how we practice. We'll have to explore it for ourselves to find out what works for us, what leads to wholesome states of mind, what leads to states of um, calmness that will allow us to let go of negative states of mind in, and then to see things as they truly are. Because that's the path really for us, abandoning these negative states of mind. We call them five hindrances in meditation, but it's not only in meditation. <laughs> we get them, these uh, hindrances in various forms during our day, during our night. But when we're meditators, we can be much more aware of what's going on in our minds. Most people aren't. And more importantly, they take it as me. It's my anger, it's my uh, depression, my anxiety, my irritability, my grumpiness. Once we own anything, it's pretty hard to investigate it. Why investigate it? Because it's yours, you know. But in actual fact, the Buddha says these are all visitors in the mind. But these are visitors we can well do without. And once they, they really sabotage our meditation, they block the meditation. And the Buddha says these five hindrances not only block meditation, they block wisdom. So while they're hanging around, we won't see clearly. Once they're reduced, even though it be temporary, then we can see things as they truly are. And that can lead to breaking through to insights, stages of enlightenment, awakening, and then we start to let go of some of these negative things permanently. So this is the, the, the path of Dhamma, the refuge in Dhamma. And as, as I say, you know, the refuge is always into a, internal. I was stressing yesterday that the inner refuge is very important, that inner refuge in knowing and awakening, Bud as I mentioned yesterday, and the inner refuge, practicing the path, mindfulness, our part in practice, in practice, what we are doing, our responsibility. So, and also the Sangha, the, uh, the third uh, refuge, is really, this is the encouragement for us, isn't it? To see that, yes, yes, it works. 
You know, these these uh, people became enlightened, became awakened. And it's very uh, wonderful that we see that it's not only monks and nuns. In the time of the Buddha, it was lay men and lay women also became enlightened. And there was, I think it was Chitta the householder, was very famous because monks would come and visit him and he would, they would give, a, a monk would give a talk to him or they'd have discussion. But if he knew, and he was a, an anagami, third stage of awakening, so that's just before full awakening. And he, sometimes the monks didn't know as much as he did, so he gave the talk to them. <laughs> so it was quite interesting that that was the case, because our refuge, when we talk about sangha, is obviously people have walked the path fully, and that's the real refuge, because they have known the path, they've practiced the path to the end of it, hopefully to the end of it, become fully enlightened. So this can be very encouraging for us. But also, um, we, if we meet lived examples in this life, teachers in this life, that can be very helpful and very encouraging for us. Because it's all very well to read about the monks and nuns in the time of the Buddha um, and get inspired. That brings up energy for us. But to actually meet uh, a spiritual friend, that's what I would call them, uh, that we can connect with, very, very valuable. And if they are um, awakened or enlightened to some degree, that's even better. So it's, uh, but uh, we see, and as I say, with all these spiritual friends, whether they be Buddhists uh, or non-Buddhists, we can check up if what they're teaching is leading to wholesome states or unwholesome states, and are they practicing ethical behavior themselves. The Buddha encouraged, actually, people to investigate him. He gave a whole teaching called the Vimanksika uh, Sutra, Sutta in the middle-length discourse on how to investigate the Buddha. But the basic one is, do you see any states of uh, defilement in the speech or the action of the, of the Buddha? And that's something we can observe and uh, we can check up. And he goes through a whole range of different uh, criteria and ending up with, well, if you practice what he teaches, does it lead to the results that he, he uh, uh, mentions, he tells us about? And that's the proof of the pudding, really, if, we, if it does lead to that. So these are lived examples of the, um, the Sangha, and this is the enlightened Sangha, of course, um, is very helpful. But if we do not, we don't know who's enlightened and who isn't, who's awakened and who isn't, but we can, we can find spiritual friends, people who are on the path, who are practicing a uh, spiritual path, who have obviously gone a bit further than we have. And this is what Ayakima, one of my teachers, a German nun, um, who ordained in Sri Lanka, she often said, you know, that these can be spiritual friends for us, someone that we can relate to, who can give advice, inspiration, encouragement to us, you know, and this is very useful on the path. And of course, as I say, we always check up, we don't, we're not gullible <laughs> if we, we find some of their advice inconsistent or their behavior inconsistent, then we have to be careful have to be careful about what they're in, in, in uh, advising us to do. So that's the uh, 
This evening I thought I'd like to actually do a guided meditation on spiritual friends because uh, a spiritual friend, the Buddha said, uh, is the whole of the spiritual path. He said it's not half the spiritual path, it's the whole. So this is something that's uh, really... And why is that? Because example really um, makes a deep, deep impression on us. Example really does. All the words, good, can be good, but the example, lived example, is far more, makes stronger impression for us. So to have spiritual friends in our lives, whether it be the best spiritual friend, the Buddha, <laughs> or, you know, other Dhamma teachers, whether they be monks or uh, lay, lay people, um, uh, and there are many other spiritual friends we've had, maybe even our parents, our teachers, you know, at school, I remember some of my teachers. There are many different spiritual friends that we encounter. We can learn from almost everybody. <laughs> if you've got the right uh, frame of mind, we can learn a lot from people. Just their good qualities we can learn from. And Ayakima, we often said too, you can learn more about the dangers of alcohol, drugs, from somebody who's been there and done that and then recovered, and from somebody who's never done that. And that's true. You know, that this is a negative example, isn't it really? A negative. But they're a spiritual friend because they, they're supporting, developing good qualities, enabling people to let go of addiction, which is not an easy thing to do. So I think that's more than enough for the uh, talking tonight, <laughs> introduction. So now we can have the uh, guided meditation, and as I mentioned, we will um, focus on a spiritual friend. And this is sort of related to, uh, first of all, related to the idea of refuge in Sangha. And the Buddha says when we have um, a spiritual, when we have uh, someone that inspires us, what we will develop is this uh, gladness. And from that gladness we can get this rapture coming up in the mind. From this rapture coming up in the mind, we can get this tranquility of the body and the mind. And then from that, letting go of the body, basically, we get happiness. And then from that, the mind coming together. So this is where, you know, reflecting on uh, the Sangha, reflecting on a spiritual friend can be very useful. Because when the mind comes together, then all the negative aspects fall away and it becomes one point, it becomes incredibly powerful, clear, and then the part, and then we can see things as they truly are. So that's the, the purpose of this recollection this evening. So let's give it a go. <laughs> now we can turn the lights down and uh, we go to audio. So we can just come into the present moment and let go of the past, what's happened today and the future, what will happen after this or tomorrow. We're not sure. Something went wrong. Please try again. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, please try again. <laughs> so... 
just in the present moment, enjoying being free of the past and the future. And we can, as part of the present moment, just make any adjustments we need to the body, seeing how the body is and being kind, making any adjustments like the head, making sure the body's balanced, feels comfortable and balanced, the head over the shoulders, and the shoulders over the hips, and the feet are comfortable. and moving them if we need to. And now we can mentally relax the body, soothe the body with warm, a warm kind and attention, starting with the top of the head, back of the head, side of the head. Just relaxing, soothing, giving our heads a mental massage. Now moving our attention down to the forehead and soothing that allowing it to relax, any wrinkles to relax, smooth out. And moving down to the round the eyes, the cheeks and the mouth, just giving them this warm, kind attention allowing them to relax. And moving down to the neck, all around the neck, and giving it a good mental massage, soothing it. And bringing to mind the right shoulder, starting at the neck, and moving our attention along the right shoulder, soothing and relaxing, letting go of any burden, heaviness, tension of the day.
and bringing to mind the right arm, starting at the top of the right arm, and we can move our attention down the right arm, all around slowly, taking in the elbow, the wrist, hand and fingers. With this warm, relaxing, soothing attention, Now bringing to mind the left shoulder and moving our attention along the left shoulder, soothing it, allowing the tensions and the burdens of the day to dissolve, relaxing it. Now bringing to mind the left arm, starting at the top of the left arm and moving our attention down the left arm, all around it with, and including the elbow, wrist, hand and fingers with this warm, kind, relaxing attention. And now we can bring to mind the back, starting just below the shoulders and moving our attention down the back, relaxing, soothing any hard or painful areas with this warmth and this kindness, this mental massage. Now we can bring to mind the front of the body, starting just below the shoulders and moving our attention down the front of the body to include the chest, the diaphragm, the stomach and the abdomen areas. Relaxing them, soothing them, 
any areas that are feeling sore or pressured, soothing them and giving this mental massage. And now we can bring to mind the right leg, starting at the top of the right leg and moving our attention down the right leg to include the knee, the ankle, foot and toes. Soothing, relaxing, any sore or painful areas, giving them this kindness, care. Now we can bring to mind the left leg, starting at the top of the left leg and moving our attention down the left leg all around to include the knee, ankle, foot and toes, soothing them, giving the left leg a mental massage.
now becoming aware of the whole body just sitting here in the present moment. And we can bring to mind someone that's been an important spiritual friend for us. It may be a Buddhist monastic, it may be a lay person, it may be even someone who's not a Buddhist. Someone we have encountered on the internet, wherever, or through books. Someone that's influenced our spiritual practice for the better. And we, when we bring to mind this person, we can get in contact with a feeling that comes up when we think of them. Maybe it would be a feeling of thanks, appreciation for what they've given us. Or it might be a sense of joy, sort of lift, uplift, inspiration. Or it may be even a quality that they really embody. Sometimes this uh, kindness or friendliness, metta, other qualities, compassion, whatever it is, we can get in contact with the feeling that arises for us, may arise for us, when we think of a spiritual friend that's helped us on our path.
and whatever feeling has come up for us, we can give that to the body, fill our bodies with it. We can give it to any uh, tiredness we may feel this evening, any soreness, any bodily problems that we have, illnesses, this joy, this thanks, this positive emotion, filling the body with it. And we can also fill our minds with this feeling, bathing any negative emotions that we may be experiencing, not trying to get rid of them, just being kind, friendly, having this joy, this thanks. we can give this feeling that we've experienced, hopefully, to the breath as we breathe in and breathe out. So the breath and this feeling, whether it be joy, thanks, inspiration, appreciation, and the breath are one, breathing it in and breathing it out. And also we can be aware as we're breathing in and breathing out, where we are aware, most aware of the breath coming and going, which can be a useful reference point for us, for the mind, as we're breathing in this feeling and breathing it out to the world. It may be joy, thanks, appreciation, whatever. And if, it, if this feeling diminishes during the meditation, just bring to mind that spiritual friend and that can bring up the feeling again. And we can continue with the breathing, with this feeling. If the mind becomes very peaceful, settled, we can just let things be and just breathe in and out with that quality that has arisen.
And now as we are coming near the end of the meditation, we can bring our minds back to what feeling we we have experienced during the meditation. Whether it be a feeling connected with a spiritual friend we brought to mind, or whether it was a sense of peace, tranquility, calm in the body, the mind coming together and letting go of so much. Whatever feelings we've developed have arisen really during the meditation. We can share them with everyone here at the Buddha Loka and all those that are participating online. These feelings may be of thanks, joy, appreciation, peace, stillness, kindness, whatever it was we experienced during the meditation. Giving it as a gift. Now we can share this feeling, whatever feeling we experience during the meditation, with all beings in the area we find ourselves in at the moment, whether here or online. And all beings, animal, humans, animals, insects, reptiles, all sorts of beings, cats, dogs, wild animals, giving them this gift of this feeling that we develop during the meditation and expanding that sharing further and further in circles, ever-widening circles around where we are now. Expanding it to include the whole world and all possible realms of existence.
now we can come back to ourselves and to develop the aspiration or intention to develop more of these good qualities that we have been inspired have been have inspired us from the good friend more of these feelings of joy thankfulness appreciation Maybe the peace in the mind. And to share this with people we encounter, wherever we encounter them, through our actions and through our speech. And we can anchor these positive, wholesome feelings in the heart that have arisen from recollecting a spiritual friend. And we can reflect on how we feel now. How do I feel now? Noticing if there's any difference from before we started the meditation and now. And was I able to get in contact with the feelings, a feeling connected with a spiritual friend, be it joy, thankfulness, appreciation, inspiration, whatever it was, or not. And what caused these feelings to arise? What really triggered them for us? And now I will sound the bell three times and those who wish to you're welcome to come out of meditation, or if you don't wish to, please continue with the meditation. And so we can come out of meditation if you wish and open the eyes and move the body.
So now is uh, time if there are any questions, you're welcome to ask any questions. And we have this uh, microphone here. And it can be uh, questions about the meditation, about the introduction, whatever comes to mind. Very good, very good. <laughs> I always think this is a, a real test, because if, if we have a lot of questions, it probably might, means that our minds didn't settle down that much during the meditation. And, you know, in daily life we have so many questions and, and so much internal chatter that to have a little bit of a break is really good. And it, uh, it shows that the, work, the meditation is working if that thinking uh, calms down and reduces. And so when that does happen, of course, you know, there are not so many questions that arise in the mind, which is wonderful. That's a good sign, you know, that the mind is getting very peaceful and... Uh, and that uh, is, is an important part of the meditation because this is what we are looking for in our lives so much is peace and stability. And where does that peace and stability come from? Our minds. <laughs> it's not out there in the world, I can tell you that. You can see that on the news. It's not out there. It's in here. But what we, and if we develop those qualities in meditation, we take them into our world, the way we experience the world. And if they're deep enough, other people can experience it too, you know, that sort of peace and that stillness and that stability in a person. It's a very attract they're very attractive qualities, so wonderful. So I will ask if there are any online questions. There are a few online questions oh, all right, that's fine. that were all asked before we started the meditation. Oh before, right, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So their minds might be nice and quiet now, but they certainly had these questions before we started. Mm. The first question is, what advice can you give to someone who is going through depression and cannot meditate as usual because of very low mental and body energy? It happened recently. Thanks for your teachings. Right, yeah. Yes, I think um, when uh, there's depression in the mind, it's a very debilitating state, not much energy in the mind and uh, also not much energy in the body for that matter. And I know it's difficult sometimes for people when they're depressed to get out of bed. <laughs> What's the point? So they, these times, I think one of the, the best things we can do for ourselves, you know, is just to have this kindness towards ourselves, a really kindly intention. Um, that may sound like quite a lot to bring up um, when we're depressed, but that is, that is a very useful thing to to have this kindness towards ourselves, not beat ourselves up for being depressed, you know, and uh, give ourselves a hard time and uh, all these things, just to be really, really kind. And also to look at things that can bring a little bit of joy into the mind. And, of course, one of the things that can bring joy into the mind, a great antidepressant, there's two of them actually that are good, um, is giving, if you can give anything, you know, that can really give mental energy of happiness and well-being. It can bring it up for us. 
So giving is a great antidote to depression. It's hard when we're depressed to do that because there's not much mental energy and there doesn't seem much opportunity to give. What have I got to give? But there's always something we can give, whether it be, you know, some kind words or thanks. Thanks is another word, another uh, gratitude or being thankful is another antidepressant as well because it, when we're thankful, it's, it brings up a sense of happiness and uh, I'm not wanting uh, a lot. And uh, so that, that is a wonderful way to, you know, to change, for the mind to change. We're not trying to get rid of that depression, but just being thankful for the things we have in our lives. In, when we're depressed, we often focus on the things we don't have or our own shortcomings. <laughs> and they're so obviously, blindingly obvious. But when we can change the focus to really the larger picture, the things in our life that are good, you know, the support that we have good, that we have, the friends we have, the material conditions we have, the availability of you know, uh, groups that we can practice with either online or in person, you know, that uh, communication, and many, many things that can bring a sense of thanks to us, just to, to bring light into the mind, bring energy into the mind. It can be very useful. Also, when, when there is depression in the mind, a very useful thing is to go to the body, go to mindfulness of the body, because exercise, you know, if we're walking, if we're walking mindfully, um, when I say walking mindfully, just being aware naturally, not slowed down, not slow motion, <laughs> anything like that, just being aware and just being with the body walking, uh, not necessarily having to label stuff, you know, trees and people and different types of cars or whatever it is we encounter on our walk. But walking is great, and getting that sort of physical grounding can can uh, change the uh, the mood in the mind. Can actually bring a bit of light and a bit of energy into the mind. So these are some things that can be uh, can be useful when when there is depression in the mind, and most importantly, don't own it. <laughs> Hard to do, isn't it, when it's really affecting our whole experience of life. And somebody says, don't own it, but it's not, it's not a permanent fixture. It's not, our, it's not us. It's not a failure. It's the quality of the mind that's come, arisen, due to causes and conditions, some physical perhaps, and some mental, what we've been focusing on. And of course, you know, also to avoid those things that we see bring or enforce or empower that depression you know for instance if we're depressed i don't think good to watch stuff about the ukraine war not or, or other things like that the news is often <laughs> often not something that encourages a lot of positive states of mind it can it can if we've got wisdom it can could we just think wow this is the way the world is always has been actually and uh, you know People think that war, wars like we're having in Ukraine are a new thing. In the time of the Buddha, he experienced wars, and his his actually his uh, his uh, family, the all his relatives, the Sakians they were called, were massacred <laughs> in his life. You know, and he did his best to protect them, 
But that happened, you know, that happened. And this is the nature of a world with lots of with defilements. We have defilements, others have defilements, and people act on them. So, so please, <laughs> don't pay attention to a lot of the news. It's not so good for you. There are many other uplifting things to, to pay attention to. So thank you for that question. Any other questions? Before I go to the next online question, are there any questions in the room? Oh, no, that's good. Right, the second online question, Ajahn. Um, how should I deal with the guilt of not wanting to meditate sometimes? I will feel like I am not doing enough, then I feel kind of guilty because of that. Thank yeah. you. Wow, yes. Well, that, yes, I think guilt is such a, uh, a negative emotion for us, and it's such a, a waste of our energy, isn't it? Feeling guilty for what we haven't done. But when we realize that, you know, every moment of our day is actually a, a moment for practice in the sense that the quality of the mind we're developing. You know, I am very, very happy if I have a busy day and I can still feel that the mind is stable, peaceful, somewhat balanced. It's got, got an evenness to it. I think, wow, that's great. So to actually not to look so much to you know, things that we uh, do to promote these states, but to notice what condition the mind is in and during the day and turning towards that does, does help. We may not have the time. Certainly feeling guilty about <laughs> not practicing will make you feel less inclined to practice. You know, it will just really feed that, won't it? And to recognize that state of mind for what it is. It's a negative. It's not going to, it doesn't bring up energy, it doesn't bring up happiness, it doesn't bring up anything that encourages us to practice. So, you know, out of kindness for, you, for ourselves, you know, not to, to get uh, involved, not to beat ourselves up with guilt, not to see, focus on our shortcomings, our, you know, faults. Uh, that, that's not a, something that will bring us any happiness, well-being. So it's uh, to be kind, to be kind. And, yeah, there will be other times you practice. <laughs> but, and, and also, as I say, you know, if we widen our definition of practice, you know, not just to think of when we're sitting, walking as the practice, or even when we are... Because when we are giving, whatever it be, whether it be a physical, something physical, when we're... Um, saying something kind, doing something kind for us, for other people, or even for ourselves. This is this is part of the practice. When we are uh, keeping uh, ethical standards, you know the five precepts. This is a gift to ourselves and to others. This is practice. So this is the idea of practice as being formal practice. Is a very limited way of looking at it. Our, our development, spiritual practice, because we have the mind with us 24-7. <laughs> so any practice, that we, any way we're operating that's turning the mind towards more positive states, not like guilt, that's the opposite, then we can say, I'm practicing, I'm practicing, I'm practicing good qualities, and that's good. It's not that I have to feel guilty about not sitting or walking, because... The, we're developing the mind 24-7. That's what we have. So 
that's our practice, not just the <laughs> not just the meditation. Because sometimes when people say that, uh, as I mentioned before, dana or giving, sharing, they don't think of that as a practice, or they don't think of ethical conduct, the five precepts, as a practice. It's all part of the practice. Our lives are our practice, really, wherever we find ourselves. And as I was saying to somebody today, we were saying yesterday, I think it was, we're talking about our kamatana, kamatana, the basis for our um, med- our meditation, as it were. You know, we talk about the breath as being the, the basis, or um, the walking, uh, the feet for when we're walking, and so on. But whatever we're doing, whether it be working with the computer or whatever, that can become our kamatana because we see the states of mind that can arise, whether they be frustration or or whatever. We're working with it. So kamatana is our life. It's really our life. So that's a, I think it's a useful way to look at it. So you're practicing. <laughs> there we are. I hope that was useful. To widen our idea of practice, very important. Thank you, Ajahn. We do have three more questions left, but only about three minutes left. So I don't all know right. if you want to give a, sh- a very short yes, all right. answer Try. to each of these. Mm-hmm. Or just maybe answer the first one at more length and uh, and we leave the last two. Mm-hmm. But the next question is um, Therawan Saranai Ajahn. Ah, Therawan Saranai. Ah, Sri Lankan person. Will you be tell. visiting Sri Lanka soon? Could you also explain a little bit more on the connection between stillness and awareness? Is stillness extreme mm-hmm. awareness, Sadhu? That's, that's probably quite a good way of... Well, I'm, I haven't got any concrete plans for, for going visiting Sri Lanka, going back to Sri Lanka, but I hope this year I get an opportunity. But it d- depends on causes and conditions where I'm here because I have uh, responsibilities in uh, Newbury and uh, you know, must look after those. But then I'd like to go to Sri Lanka when I can. You know, I'd like to go once a year, actually. So it's very uh, enjoy going. So it's been an important part of my practice. And yes, I think uh, that's quite a quite an interesting way to think of stillness as being extreme awareness, because you can say that. Because mindfulness, when we the the path of meditation is really sama vayama. This is right effort seeing the mind, seeing the wholesome or unwholesome qualities in the mind, letting go of the unwholesome, obviously, and then bringing out positive qualities in the mind. So letting go of the five hindrances and bringing up positive qualities. And then we have this mindfulness that's in the present and we're remembering also the Buddha's teaching and it's focusing the mind in, in the present. And then as that focus develops, as it settles down, as it stabilizes, it will turn into samadhi. Just as, you know, if we're whipping cream, it will turn into butter eventually. It will change state. And this is just mindfulness that's got very, very still, very strong. And this is awareness. And of course, the Buddha mentions that in the fourth jhana, this awareness we often think of mindfulness and, and samadhi or stillness as being separate. People often say separate things. But in the fourth jhana, he says this is the, the peak of mindfulness because there's total awareness in this uh, very, very deep state of meditation where the world has been cut off completely. We're totally within the mind. 
So this is where mindfulness reaches its peak. So it is, it's just a development of mindfulness. And it's not a matter of whether you can do without mindfulness and just practice samadhi, or you can only practice mindfulness and ignore samadhi. You get both of them. <laughs> if the mind gets still, if the mind uh, focus, its mindfulness starts to gather and it starts to get smaller and smaller, the focus, samadhi will arise until it's one-pointed, there's no other, just focused on what one is experiencing in the meditation. Usually this feeling of, they call it piti sukha, this rapture and happiness in the mind. Very easy to stay with that. <laughs> I call it mental glue. I mean, it's just, uh, why would you ever turn away from it, you know? So the mind is, uh, you know, gathering momentum till it reaches that state. But mindfulness is always useful for us. Um, but it's the constituent of samadhi. This is a part of the path. So I hope that's uh, answered your question. I like that. Extreme awareness. <laughs> What an unusual way of putting it. Yeah. So thank you for that. And uh, is there any other ones that we can just... There are two other questions. Yes, yeah, just see if they're brief. And Ajahn, and maybe just a brief answer to each one because we've reached nine o'clock. Yep. Um, my mind was very unsettled like the wick on my candle. What can I do about this? Oh, right. My mind was very unsettled like the wick on my candle. And part of the, the thing you can do about that is to be at peace with that mind that's unsettled, uh, not wanting something different, not wanting it to be peaceful, just being at peace with it. This is what's happening now. Uh, it's the present moment. And when we have that sort of being at peace with, making peace with whatever we're experiencing, it will settle. It will, the restlessness will subside by itself. If you try to make yourself unrestless, make yourself control and become peaceful, that won't work. It won't work. But if you just accept things, make peace with them, possible, that restlessness will go down. And then we have also that sort of gap between what we're experiencing and the knower of that experience, isn't it? That we, we recognise there is restlessness in the mind but we can, as it were, the witness can be quite peaceful, at peace with it. So be it. That's, that's as it is now. And when we have that attitude, then it can settle. But as Ajahn Brahm often says, you know, if there's waves on the pond or on the lake or on whatever, and you try to pat them down, what happens? You just make more disturbance. And that's what we usually try to do, control, thinking we own this mind. And that's obviously, I mean, anybody that reflects on the nature of the mind, can see pretty much we're not controlling it. It's, it can be all over the place. Um, but we, that witnessing, that knowing, that bud that I mentioned before at the beginning in the introduction can be at peace with that, accept that as it is at the moment, and then things can change by themselves. So, last question and we can finish off. Last question. Thank you, Ajahn. I have a job that is comfortable but it lacks meaning. I often think about changing careers. Is meaning from a job feasible or desirable? Right. Well, it's very desirable, isn't it? Because whatever we feel there's, there's meaning in, it can give us a lot of energy and we feel very positive about it. And, uh, 
and usually then we we can dedicate ourselves to it in a big way. So it always it always good if we feel there's a lot of meaning, purpose, if it's helping uh, others as well as ourselves, and that will give us a lot of energy. So it's um, you know, and that's what really. Um, propelled me into becoming a monk. <laughs> so maybe this person may be a monk or a nun, because you know I could see my life, my nine to five life as a librarian was. I mean, it was quite satisfying in some ways because you help people when you're a librarian. You find information, and you you know you're dealing with knowledge and all these things. So it's quite a positive thing. But I felt like it was just going round and round and round. And I was looking for something more meaningful. And that's where our spiritual life comes in. That's where the spiritual path is, is beckoning us because we can find that meaning, that purpose. It has to come from within us, actually. So you can always re-envisage whatever you're doing, you know, in terms of being of benefit to others. And that can be another way of looking at it too. You know, that in actual fact, what I'm doing, even though it may seem meaningless, it is actually benefiting others. So um, what was it? The definition of business was uh, the founder of Dilmati came up with um, the saying that business is for... It's for human, for for helping others, more basically helping others, you know. And of course, that's a that's quite an altruistic way of looking at business because people often think business is about getting stuff from other people, but we're just putting it the other way. What we're giving to other people, uh, tea. <laughs> but he's also offering a lot of other things that he does too because they support lots of uh, good cause, uh, good causes for wildlife, and also for. Um, supporting equality of wages and that sort of thing within their communities, within the communities in Sri Lanka, which is much needed at the moment. So hopefully you can do that, either become a monk or a nun, or re-envisage what you're doing, or change job. I mean, that's the possibility, isn't it? That's a possibility. There's probably others, but we can change job if that's viable. You know, to something that really calls calls us, and that we feel one, we we can dedicate a lot of energy to. So, so thank you for that question. Yep. And now we can finish off. Those who would like to, we can finish off by paying respects to the Buddha Dhamma and the Sangha.